This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is Ron Oster, card number 17, second base for the Cincinnati Reds. Okay, Ron Oster, looking forward to this one. But first, we have some follow-up from last week's episode about Sammy Stewart. On the Facebook post about Sammy Stewart and the Sammy Stewart episode, listener Ian posted that this episode was both heartwarming and heartbreaking for me. He met Sammy Stewart on his sixth birthday in the Orioles clubhouse. And Ian said that he has cystic fibrosis and was treated at Johns Hopkins. And so Sammy, both of his kids suffered from cystic fibrosis. So he went out of his way. The Orioles arranged this meeting. Uh, He gave Ian a bat that he had signed and he became Ian's favorite player. So it, it does go to show while Sammy suffered from addiction, he was still a person and he was still from all accounts a good guy struggling with this addiction. I thought that was a a very nice story to hear after we kind of had a sad episode. It was good to hear the human element of Sammy Stewart. Yeah, we definitely got a sense of that last week that Sammy touched a lot of people in his life, not just because of his being an athlete, but because of being a father with two kids with CF, that that was something that he really tried to do was to help with other kids in the hospital, help with other children that had that condition. So we really thank you all for, for sharing that. Uh, you can find our Facebook page at facebook.com slash 1988topspodcast. Now let's go to this week's card and Ron Oster. And why are we talking about Ron today? We have talked about Grandma's Scorebook in the past, at G Scorebook on Twitter. And we were in touch with the creator of Grandma's Scorebook, and that is Mike Murphy. And we talked to Mike and said, it would be great to have you come on to talk about a Reds player as that was Grandma's favorite team. So welcome to the show, Mike Murphy. Mike, can you tell us a little bit about the project Grandma's Scorebook and a little bit about your grandma? So yes, thank you for having me on. Been looking forward to this. My grandmother kept score for the Cincinnati Reds from 1973 to 1991, listening to Marty and Joe on the radio. Grandmother retired, and she started keeping score at the age of 67 as something to do. So grandma lived alone. She didn't have a driver's license. We lived on a dead-end street, so grandma lived seven houses down the street from me and my brothers. So We spent a lot of time together. We took Grandma to church. We took her to the grocery. We took her to the doctor's appointments, family reunions. So we spent a lot of time with Grandma. So Grandmother started keeping score in 1973. She started creating her own handmade scorecards. She did this every night. So the very first one we have was where she was used the discarded envelope on the table, flipped it over, and just started writing names down. She started keeping score, and then it went to half sheets of paper, and then she asked for a notebook, and then we that's how we got into the notebooks. But yeah, she wanted her own handmade scorecards every night. My Aunt Roberta tried to give her a scorebook one time, an actual official scorebook, but she doesn't, didn't really like it because, as you will see in her pages, she had her own unique style. Didn't allow for her fun comments, I guess. 
So when grandma kept score, think of your notebook. It was opened up in front of her. And she would keep her score on the right-hand side of the notebook. Flipped over on the back would be the spare notes where she would write all of her game notes. If there was a fight, she would make comments of a fight. Or if somebody got ejected. Or if somebody was coming up from the minor leagues. Or somebody was sent to the minor leagues. She would write all those detailed notes of who was coming, who was going, who was traded, who's on injury, who had wisdom teeth pulled. So it gave her something to look forward to every single night. But one of the fun things, guys, was um, because we took her everywhere, if we ever went to a party, she would make it known. The Reds play at 7 o'clock. i got to be home at 7 o'clock. So that was always understood to where, yeah, I'll go, but if we, if possible, I just want to be home for the you know, pregame show, I guess. After your grandmother passed away, you received all these scorebooks, and you have recently uploaded everything onto a website so it's searchable. And that's grandmascorebook.com. And part of your reason for joining us today was the launch of that website. It looks fantastic. It's also searchable by player. So you can find, and I assume you did this specifically for us, Paul Nochi's <laughs> only game as a Reds player is highlighted. So, you know, one game as a Red, I think 70 games as a Cub. Also, can you tell us about the logo for Grandma's Scorebook? As I started this project, it started with out on Twitter during the pandemic. I read an article. Somebody was Lance McAllister in Cincinnati. He talked about how his grandmother gave him a box of baseball cards every Easter. And that made me think of my grandma. And I had the scorebooks. I've had them in my attic. So then I started throwing them out on Twitter. And then I started to organically get a little bit of an audience. And that's when Ryan Fagan noticed it from the Sporting News and did a feature article on her. Um, so that's how it got started. But then I also made a connection with the iconic graphic designer, Todd Radel. You know, he's done a lot for Major League Baseball, a lot of designs. Did the Anaheim Angels, the Angels logo, and several different types of logos. So he and I kind of got a, got connected on Twitter. And I told him of my project, and I asked him, if I do this website, I'd like to do a logo in her honor. He agreed to do it, and... So on the logo, I told him three things. I said, Todd, I wanted to have the year she scored from 73 to 91. I said, I wanted to have her signature. And I said, I want there to be a reference to the Reds' three World Series championships, 75, 76, and 90. And I threw out the idea of kind of like the World Cup jerseys where they have the stars for their titles. And that's kind of what the reference to the three gold stars on the base path is. That's for 75, 76, and 90. That is fantastic. It's a great logo. Looks good, and I do love that it has her signature on there. We'll be walking through Ron's career and make reference to some of these scorecards and what Minnie Lee had to say about them. So, Mike, why are we talking about Ron Oster today? So, Ron Oster was one of Grandma's two favorite all-time Reds players. The first one was Ken Griffey, was the Big Red Machine was going on, and then Ron Oster. I remember specifically asking her, who one of her favorite players was, and she said Ron Oster. At the time, when I was a little bit younger, that kind of caught me off guard because it wasn't Pete Rose, Johnny Bench. Those guys, like my guy was. My favorite player was Johnny Bench. So Ron Oster, then come to find out as obviously I got older, he was a local guy, played for the Reds, hard-nosed grandma, believed in hard work. So she definitely appreciated that. When Ron Oster's time with the Reds organization lines up Almost exactly 
with the time frame of the scorebook. And so it's going to be great to talk with you about it and great to walk through some of those scorecards and Ron Oster's career. Yeah, the perfect representation in baseball card form of Minnie Lee's time and doing the scorebook. And so no better reason to get right to the front of card 17. And we have Ron Oster... He is at the plate. It looks like he's just put one into right field, maybe down the right field line. A left-handed batter. His forearms look very strong in this picture. He's wearing the away Reds jersey. One thing I like about this, even though it's the plain gray jersey, I do like that there's the red and white trim on the on the sleeves and the belt. Also noticeable on this card, Ron Oster famously did not wear batting gloves. There is a story, perhaps apocryphal, that Ron Oster's hands were so worn that they would bleed from his lack of batting gloves and that over time he developed hard calluses on his hands. I, you know, I haven't found independent verification of that. I think that might be Wikipedia knowledge, but <laughs> I can also imagine at this point you got a 31-year-old guy who's still not wearing batting gloves, probably saw some damage to his hands. And he was a switch hitter, so he's batting lefty here in, in this picture, but he could flip it around, so it made him valuable to substitute later in his career. Now going to the back of 17, and we have Ron Oster, second baseman, height 6'2", 195, switch hitter, right-handed thrower, drafted by the Reds in the ninth round of June 1974, born May 5th, 1956, in Cincinnati, Ohio, with a home in Cincinnati, Ohio. So much Cincy here, local guy. We talked about Cincinnati and the history of the naming, the order of Cincinnatus in the Richard Dotson episode. Uh, Mike, is there anything else that people should know about Cincinnati other than Chili, Icky Woods? Anything you got to add there? Sure, I've got a couple notes, definitely. Uh, So William Howard Taft, the 27th president of the United States and the 10th chief justice of the United States. And he is the only person to have held both of those offices. So he was born in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, You guys may be familiar with this. Do you know who the mayor of Cincinnati was in 1977 and 1978? Oh, I know this one. Jerry Springer was the mayor. So he was the mayor of Cincinnati in 1977 to 1978. And a fun one for some people in this audience who are listening. The headquarters for Kenner Products is in Cincinnati, Ohio. And the reason I'm bringing that up is... Well, for pop culture reasons, they were the ones who got the license for the Star Wars figures that changed a lot of our lives growing up. But it is also the creation of the starting lineup figures in 1987. So that idea was conceived by Pat McAnally, who was a punter and a wide receiver for the Cincinnati Bengals. And when he was in Cincinnati, he went into a toy store and saw G.I. Joe figures on the shelf, but he didn't see anything related to baseball athletes. And he thought... Children recognize athletes as much as they recognize some superheroes. So he came up with the idea and proposed it to Kenner about creating the starting lineup figures. Um, Interesting thing about Pat McAnally, he graduated from Harvard Law School and is still the only player with a verified perfect score on the Wonderlick test. We should have gotten our Ron Oster starting lineups out for this one. Ron went to Withrow High School, and in looking at Withrow High School, this is a beautiful building. 
it looks like a college campus. There's this arching bridge and a hundred plus foot clock tower on the campus. It was designed by Frederick Garber, who designed many homes, libraries, schools around the Cincinnati area, including Nippert Stadium, which is home of the Cincinnati Bearcats football team. Notable alumni of Withrow High School include Ethan Allen, not the furniture guy or the Green Mountain boy who battled at Ticonderoga. This Ethan Allen was a baseball player. He played actually only five games in Major League Baseball more than Ron Oster. So Ron doesn't have the distinction of most MLB games for a Withrow High grad. But Ethan Allen played 13 seasons, a career 300 hitter, played for the Phillies, finished 17th in MVP voting in 1935, and went on to coach the Yale baseball team from 1946 to 68. And his players included future president George H.W. Bush. Ethan Allen passed away at the age of 89 in 1993. Also, Withrow High grads, singer, actress, and aunt of a tequila magnate, Rosemary Clooney. <laughs> Oscar-winning cinematographer for Ben-Hur, The Graduate, The Sting, and many other films, Robert Surtees. And Jimmy Dodd, who was the MC of the original Mickey Mouse Club. While at Withrow, Ron participated in baseball, basketball, and swimming. He was recruited to play baseball at... Marietta College, which is the alma mater of Kent to Colby, and he was a, a real hard-nosed player even growing up. He said at four years old, his dad taught him how to switch hit, and he idolized another famous local guy who played for the Reds and would later manage Ron Oster, Pete Rose. Ron was picked in the ninth round of the 1974 draft, one round ahead of Mark Fidrich, two rounds ahead of Gumby Gantner and 19 rounds ahead of Sammy Stewart in that same year. Beginning his minor league career, he was sent to Billings, Montana for the rookie league, hit 311 while playing shortstop, which is a good start. But as an infielder, he had a lot of people ahead of him in the organization. The Reds had Dave Concepcion about to make eight straight all-star appearances. Joe Morgan was at second base. He was heading into his first of back-to-back -back MVP seasons. So Ron had his time in the minors scheduled ahead of him. He ends up moving up to A-ball. And something striking about his time in the minors, he wasn't really that good. <laughs> a lot of these guys are hitting 300 at A-ball, and you see a clear path for them to the major leagues. Ron Oster's average in the majors was better than his early minor league seasons. But he did move station to station. He moved from a to double A to triple A in three seasons, hitting 219 at A, but still getting a promotion, 246 at double A. He didn't hit a home run until his third year. Finally, at triple A in Indianapolis in 1977, he hit 255 with four home runs. Ron only played shortstop in the minors, and every year that he played in the minors, he had more than 30 errors. And that seemed like a lot to me, but then I was looking at comparing some other players, and one year, a guy named Todd Cruz had 53 in the same season. And I thought, well, that's wonder what happened to that guy. And he actually went on to be a pretty good major league baseball shortstop. Ron, while having a decent number of errors at AAA, did earn himself a fun fact. That Ron led American Association shortstops with 300 putouts, 428 assists, and 102 double plays at Indianapolis in the 1978 season. He also batted 259 with seven home runs and 11 steals that year, which was good enough to earn a call up late in the season in 1978. 
The Reds at this point were still really good, but finished second in the National League West in 1978 by two and a half games to the Dodgers. Ron came into the team, played six games, and we have our first of Grandma's scorecards. So yes, Ron Oster made his Major League debut September 10th, 1978. He replaced Dave Concepcion at shortstop in the top of the ninth, but he didn't get an at-bat. But his very first career start and his very first career hit is September 30th, 1978 at Riverfront Stadium. He gets his first hit, a single to right field, driving in Junior Kennedy in the bottom of the sixth off Phil Negro. And there's also a note on Minnie Lee's scorecard here about Oster's form on the farm team. She has his batting average home runs, RBIs. She had all that information. She has like a little baseball reference here on her scorecard. So she was clearly paying attention to the to the radio when they're talking about a guy's mm-hmm. first hit and, and his background. It's, it's really quite amazing. That was one of the beautiful things about her scorecards is that she was truly locked in. You guys know when you could score keep score to baseball game you got to be locked in and paying attention so when she's not when she's listening to marty and joe if they're saying it she's writing it down and i'm always fascinated and you know she's even got the attendance figures always on the sheet too so it's just it's it's amazing she <laughs> and never... she kept it cumulative as well that's right that's right <laughs> and something i did notice about these scorebooks they're almost invariably positive there are plenty of sections to where she it's not just your straight up scorecard she will just talk about um, anything so the one of one of my most favorite ones are the sections where she on the middle of her scorecard she'll talk about caning peaches and you can actually see the peach stains on the paper or she was making chicken pot pie or somebody called and she missed this part of the game or one of us knocked on her door and was selling something as a fundraiser and she missed that part. So she was very religious. So she was Catholic. And if you would see at the beginning of the seasons, she would always give up the Reds games, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday. That was her sacrifice. So she would never listen to the Reds, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday. And when those days would arrive on the calendar in her scorebook, she would write, did not listen to the game because of this. And mm. she would leave games in the middle of games and says, I stopped listening to tune into Billy Graham preaching. You know, so if there were episodes on TV or something, that, or she stopped listening to listen to Reverend Jeffrey Jesse Jackson give his Democratic National Convention speech, or President Reagan came on to address the nation. Um, one of the most fascinating entries I have was even for minor league games. She has the March 31st, 1981. The Reds were playing the White Sox in Florida, and President Reagan was shot. And she puts in the seventh inning, I stopped listening because President Reagan was shot, and I started to watch the news. So there's stuff in there for everything. So Ron ended up going three for eight in six appearances that year with the Reds. Not enough to dislodge Dave Concepcion from the starting spot at short. In 1979, he starts back at AAA, goes in with some major league experience, and has his best season yet, hitting 281, 23 steals, six triples, earns another late season call up. This time goes 0 for 3, and the Reds made the playoffs that year, but got swept in the NLCS. Ron didn't play any role in that series. I don't think he made the postseason roster. And we love to talk about the 1979 World Series around these parts. So I went looking because Minnie Lee also liked to write about 
the World Series, the All-Star Games. She has nothing to say about the We Are Family Pirates. What happened here, Mike? So I had a very, very difficult time adjusting to the first grade. So when it comes to the game one of the World Series in 1979, we see that her scorecard is empty. And on an empty scorecard, she writes, I'm giving up baseball this year and praying Mike can adjust to school and really enjoy it so he will be anxious to go each morning. Please, God, do help him. Thank you. So the context for that was I had a very, very strict nun teacher. And so, you know, I lived down the street from grandma and I would go visit grandma every single morning. And my mom was the most sweetest lady. So when I got to school and I had a pretty strict teacher, she was also known as Sister Torpedo. So they would say that she would just really (laughs) blow you up. So here I am going to school all happy and people are saying, oh, you've got Sister Torpedo. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, and then the very first day she lights into somebody. She made us line up at her desk and we had to bring our number two pencils with us. And she cut off our erasers with a razor blade because we don't make mistakes. And if you don't have an eraser, you won't rush through your work. So I start crying. And then she sends me out in the hallway because you don't come back in here until you stop crying. And that was one of the hardest things I had to do. So I would cry, guys, every single morning for school. Do I have to go to school? So she gave up baseball, that World Series, because still in October, I was having a really, really hard time going to school. But if you notice there, guys... She originally put, I'm giving up baseball and praying for Mike, but she quickly changed that and put this year, like, this guy's going to have to get it together. I'm not giving (laughs) it up completely. I don't want people to get the wrong idea. So she made sure she put in there this year. It's such a sweet detail, and hopefully she still watched the games. She loved the game so much that even when the Reds weren't in it, she listened or watched on TV for every ALCS, NLCS, and World Series game. So even though the Reds weren't in it, so if you're a fan of different teams and you want to see if Grandma, what game she had, if they were on TV, she has it. So when the Reds season was over, she kept going. She thoroughly enjoyed the postseason. So 1980 was the end of an era for the Reds and the beginning of a new era at second base. Joe Morgan, at age 35 and after eight seasons with the Reds, he became a free agent and he signed for Houston. How did Minnie Lee feel about joe morgan leaving so she does put in her notes may 1st 1980 joe morgan returned to riverfront but during this game evidently joe morgan got booed so grandma writes in her notes Mm. he got star of the game he did go two for four that game um he had a two-run home run off mike lacoste in the top of the fifth so he did get the star of the game and she writes i'm so glad i'm truly ashamed of the fans for the way they booed morgan so the Reds lose to the Astros 9-3. to So she was giving it back to the fans of, how are you booing, booing Joe Morgan? She, she took exception to that. I'm in her camp with that. I don't like booing players if they come back, if they're a free agent and, and, and leave uh, either. But Joe Morgan leaving for the Astros did leave an opening for a new second baseman. And that's Ron Oster getting a chance to join the starting lineup. In April and early May, he was a pinch hitter, sometimes would slot in at shortstop. But by the end of May, he was playing regularly at second base. By the end of the year, he was the starter. On July 28, 1980, just 42 years ago this week, Ron gets another big-time appearance in Minnie Lee's scorebook when he hits his first home run. 
Ron ended up having a, a very good rookie season. He hit 277, played good defense, and finished fourth in National League Rookie of the Year voting. His season looks pretty good, but not necessarily Rookie of the Year caliber. He was on the top's all-star rookie team, but as a shortstop. Second base was taken by Damaso Garcia. 1981, the Reds finished first overall in the National League West, four games ahead of the Dodgers, but... Again, because they finished second in both halves of the season, of that strike season, they did not make the playoffs, so unlucky for them. Mike, was there anything Minnie Lee had to say about the Reds missing out on the playoffs in that way? So the 1981 season was one of the scorebooks that we do not have. We we did lose a couple of them due to some water damage. So no, I do not have any notes that correspond to the end of the 1981 season, but I'm sure she was thoroughly disappointed. So we don't have anything about Ron in 1981 in the scorebook, but he ended up having one of his best seasons. In fact, this is the only season of his career with an OPS plus over 100. It was 109. He hit 271, five home runs, seven triples. His defense was great. He was fourth in the National League in defensive war with 1.6. Top five in the National League in double plays, putouts, and assists. And even though he was limited to 105 games, he was worth 3.2 wins above replacement, the second highest value of his career, fourth among second basemen in the strike-shortened 1981. The next few years, he was okay in 1982 and 83. He had a little bit more pop with nine and then 11 home runs. His average was in the 260s both those years. Then fell back a little bit in 1984, a 242 average. But he was striking out a lot, around 100 times a year, which for a second baseman is not what you want to see. And also the Reds during this stretch were a little disappointing. We do have this fun scorecard from 1982. Just an empty scorecard. <laughs> Minnie Lee said she couldn't find the game on anywhere, and it's probably for the best because the Reds lost 101 games that season. Yeah, I I feel your pain there, Minnie Lee, followed by another last-place finish in 1983, then fifth place in 1984. That led to a big change in the team, and that was a new player-manager hired at the end of that season, Pete Rose. Ron's childhood hero comes in, and Ron ends up having his best full season under Pete Rose. He was playing alongside fellow Cincinnatian Rose, playing first base, And another local guy, the Cobra, Dave Parker, who had a real return to form that year, finishing second in the MVP race. Ron had his best full season average on base percentage and a career high 26 doubles. He only had one home run, but was still good for 3.8 wins above replacement. And the Reds were good that year, too. They won 89 games, but finished five and a half behind the Dodgers. 1986, the Reds again finished in second, this time 10 games back from the Astros. Ron with another typical Ron Oster year, 258 average, eight homers, a career-high nine steals. And then 1987 through June, he was putting up, again, typical numbers, 253, two home runs. And then on July 5th, in the top of the ninth, the Reds are up 7-3 to with one out. They're playing the Mets. There's runners on first and second. A ground ball to Dave Concepcion at short. Ron receives the ball at second, attempts to turn a double play. Mookie Wilson slides in to break up the double play. Ron's cleat got caught, and Wilson's slide took out his knee. And Mike, you sent me a picture of the scorecard. Was it clear how bad this was from the radio description? 
So Grandma writes in her notes, Oster hurt his knee in the top of the ninth. Wilson hit him at second base. He left on a stretcher. He had ligament and cartilage damage, and according to the New York Times, his career was in doubt immediately. He had surgery within a couple days to completely rebuild his left knee. And that ended his 1987 season, and his reward for his many years of service, the Reds declined to pick up his $750,000 option for 1988. They didn't offer him a major league deal at all. They just straight up released him. Ron said, I feel like I gave them a lot of good years. I played hurt a lot of times. It's like they got the meat off the bone, and now they're just going to throw the bone away. Yeah, and Pete Rose's response to this, too, kind of displays what can be the very cold nature of professional sports, which is him saying, quote, I don't know which teams he's talked to, but they aren't going to give him a contract if he's limping, which is true, but still maybe not something you want to say out loud. And hard-nosed Ron Oster said he was going to be ready by opening day, and he also said he wasn't going to sign a minor league deal with any team. He didn't want a tryout. He wanted a major league deal. He ends up signing in January as a free agent with the Reds for $290,000, so one-third of his previous salary. He plays a little bit at AA and AAA to rehab, and he gets called up in mid-July, more than a year after his last game. He starts out splitting time with Jeff Treadway, who then had some injury trouble. Ron ends up starting 42 games. He had a slow start, but ended with a 280 average, thanks to a very good run from mid-August through the end of the season, in which he hit 320. Yeah, this is a, a remarkable comeback after having such extensive surgery on his knee. He was given the Hutch Award, which is given to the player who best exemplifies the fighting spirit and competitive desire of Fred Hutchinson, who was the former pitcher and manager, including a stint with the Reds. He died of cancer in 1965, and I think we've, we've mentioned other winners of that award in this series. But after the season, Ron's now in demand. He made that comeback. He's back at his major league level. And he was almost the successor to Steve Sachs in L.A. Instead, he stays home, signs a two-year contract for a guaranteed $1.3 million with the Reds. The team also had a 1991 option that they could re-sign him uh, for another $650,000. 1989, the first year of that deal, he starts 87 games. He was basically replacement level by this point. He hit 246 and was better than average defensively. But he's 33 recovered from his surgery, and he'd lost a step. 1990 is a big year for the Reds with the likes of Barry Larkin, Eric Davis, Jose Rijo, and of course, Chris Sabo. The Reds were in first place from day one, and Ron was largely a pinch hitter this season and a role player coming off the bench for the world champs. He hit 299, and according to Wikipedia, he was one of the team's top pinch hitters, but actually, However... he, he hit only <laughs> 0.77 as a pinch hitter. He was a very good sub. I think oftentimes he would be brought in as a defensive replacement, and then he'd get substitute appearance at bats. And as a sub, he hit 3.51. So he was very good as a replacement. And he was also important playing a, a leadership role for this Reds team. Ron said, I like everybody to play hard, and if I saw somebody who wasn't, I'd say something. Pete Rose would put it more succinctly. 
maybe we need to get the bleep ready here. Ron Oster was an <laughs> ass kicker. And maybe Ron Oster added some luck to this team. Yeah, the Reds were in first place all season, but they did have some bumps in the road. They were up as many as 11 games in July, but then went on an eight-game losing streak and were desperate to find solutions. And what they found was a bald Ron Oster. Oster swinging at the first pitch. And if you're wondering where's the hair under his helmet, last night after the eighth straight loss, Oster shaved his head. Eric Davis shaved Ron's head, and his teammates rubbed it for good luck. Whether that was the, the catalyst for this change, or maybe Lou Pinella switched up the lineup a little bit, it worked. They closed out the year five and a half games up. They go into the playoffs, and we have the final regular season scorebook entry for Ron Oster here. So his final career hit was October 3rd, 1990. It was a double to right field off Juan Augusto in the bottom of the eighth. And that was for career hit number 1,118. That is his last regular season career hit. How about in the playoffs? This was Ron's first and only playoff appearance. And by this point, he's a role player. He ends up getting a couple appearances in the NLCS, pinch hit appearances in games one and five. He was a defensive replacement in game four, but he had a huge hit in game six. He came in with the Reds leading the series 3-2, comes in in a double switch in the seventh inning, the game's tied 1-1, and he leads off the bottom of the seventh with a single. Oster gets moved to third on a Billy Hatcher single, and of course the Reds' hero, Luis Quinones, drives him in with a single to right, the go-ahead run, and that ended up being the margin of victory, 2-1. The Reds win that deciding game six over the Pirates, on Grandma's scorecard, it has a note that Glenn Bragg saved a homer in the ninth inning, but Ron's run was the deciding margin. Does it say anything about going to the World Series for the first time since 1976? Does she have any notes about the kind of historic nature of, of her team here? That was one of the things I was shocked about. No, she doesn't. She just rolls into the World Series as if, you know, just let's go, let's keep rolling. So as they move into the World Series, the Reds, of course, are matched up against the 103-win A's, and they're underdogs. Grandma starts off the game once writing in a different ink, and then she says, I'm going to switch to the red, and if the Reds lose, I will go back to the blue ink. So the Reds won, and then that's where she says for game two, I'll stick with the red pin. The Reds won that first game 7 to nothing. Minnie Lee again decides, I better use the red pen for the entire World Series. Game two, Ron comes in as a pinch hitter, down four to two. Joe Oliver had doubled, so he has a runner in scoring position. Ron Oster had his knee torn up when Mookie Wilson, now with the Toronto Blue Jays, Mookie was with the Mets back in 1986. A severe injury to Oster. He was out a year and a half rehabilitating that knee and has made a remarkable comeback. Hooked on another two or three years to his career. And he had a terrible injury and a very serious operation. And he hits it up the middle. Now we're going to have a play at the plate. Dave Henderson throws. He is saved. The Reds get a run. Ulster down to second with two outs.
by Sam Palazzo, the third base coach, sending the slow-footed Joe Oliver. Dave Henderson makes the throw. It looks like he can't believe it. That's an in-between hop, the toughest hop for a catcher to handle. And this was Ron's only at-bat of the World Series. The Reds would go on to tie the game, take it to extra innings, winning in 10 on a Joe Oliver single off Dennis Eckersley. So a lot of unlikely heroes on this Reds team that sweeps the mighty A's and wins their first title since the Big Red Machine and their their last title to date. How did Minnie Lee react to this victory? Her final notes are, I just hope Davis and Hatcher aren't hurt seriously. But we do find out Eric Davis was definitely hurt seriously because he didn't fly home with the team. He stayed in the hospital with his lacerated kidney. But that just goes back to what that meant to Grandma and those players. She just knew it didn't seem right, but she just had to write in there, I hope they're not hurt seriously. Yeah, these were her guys. So Ron gets to enjoy the celebration. The Reds get to visit the White House. They visit President George Bush. George Bush says, when I talk to Mr. Gorbachev about offensive weapons, I'm going to tell him number 44 is bad is not negotiable. (laughs) But what Ron had to say about his trip to the White House, I didn't know what to do. I was afraid to do anything. Walk straight, stay in line. I was afraid to speak. I remember not knowing what to wear, but I don't think President Bush cared. He was a neat guy. He just seemed like a normal guy who happened to run the country. But uh, Ron, unassuming local guy, local boy done good, uh, gets a trip to the White House. After the celebrations are over, however, the Reds decided not to pick up that 1991 option for Ron Oster, and he retires, going out, having played his entire career in his hometown, bringing home a World Series title. So closing the book on Ron Oster, 13 seasons in the major leagues, 265 average, 1,118 hits, 42 home runs, 33 triples, career OPS plus of 87, and a career war of 11. In the 1980s, he was 10th in games played, 10th in hits, and 10th in defensive war among second basemen. How about in retirement? Ron moved from the field to the bench, and he managed the Reds' AA affiliate in 1992 to a 90-53 record. 93, he joins Tony Perez's coaching staff as first base coach, and Perez was fired after 44 games. Loyal to his former teammate, Ron walks with him and resigns in solidarity. He didn't like the way that Perez was treated, didn't feel like he was given enough time. He was brought back as first base coach a few years later under coach Jack McKeon, later moves to third base, and after the 2000 season, Jack McKeon's fired. Oster and... Minnie Lee's other favorite, Ken Griffey Sr., are interviewed for the head coaching job. According to Oster and reports at the time, Oster was offered a contract. He says it was $200,000. By comparison, Lloyd McClendon had been signed for a $1 million a year contract. So Ron thought, maybe I should ask for more. So he asks for $250,000. Not a huge amount in 2000, considering (laughs) contracts at the time. And instead... The Reds treated their $200,000 offer as a final offer, viewed Ron's request as a rejection. Willie Randolph also said this is not nearly enough money and rejected a similar offer. The Reds instead hired Bob Boone, but they still have Ron Oster there as the third base coach. He still had another year on his contract, so he sticks around, then is gone at the end of the year. 
He still shows up at Red's events. He ran a landscaping business and recently was groundskeeper at Belterra Park, a racetrack and casino in the Cincinnati area. He had four kids, two sons, two daughters. His one son, Jake Oster, played in the minor leagues in the White Sox system, went on to be head baseball coach at Urbana University for a short time. Ron is now spending a lot of time with his grandkids. He talked in this Where Are They Now video about having some work flexibility and still being healthy enough to spend some quality time with his grandkids. So Ron Oster, a fixture in Red's 1980s baseball. What do we think about him now that we've looked at him a little bit more? Ron was inducted into the Withrow High Hall of Fame in 2013. And in 2015, the baseball field at his alma mater was renamed Ron Oster Field. Ron said, a lot of people who use this field won't know who I am. I think they'll look it up and say, I'm playing on a field named after a guy who played 30 years ago or whatever, which is a fantastic quote. In 2014, he was given a high honor by the Reds, inducted into their Hall of Fame alongside two other local heroes, Dave Parker and Ken Griffey Jr. Bill James said of Ron Oster, he was a quiet, efficient player who was always overlooked. But this is a guy who took over second base from Hall of Famer Joe Morgan. What a challenge, stepping into the shoes of a Hall of Famer and also that team was stepping into the shoes of the big red machine of the 1970s. Many of his teammates said that they wouldn't have won the 1990 title without Oster there to help steady the ship and sometimes get in teammates' faces. Another Hall of Famer, teammate Barry Larkin, said, Eric Davis was the street guy. Ronnie was the work ethic guy. I wanted Eric's swagger and I wanted Oster's work ethic. Pretty high praise from a Hall of Famer. The Reds counted on Ron Oster for a long time and Minnie Lee counted on Ron Oster, too. Mike, how would you sum up how Minnie Lee saw Ron? Well, she loved him dearly. She thought a lot of him. And she would just write differently about him sometimes than she would the other players. There was one instance where he came back from being on the injured list. It wasn't after his major injury in 88 or 87. But she just writes where he had been out for a while. And she said, Ron Oster's back in these huge capital letters. And she says, I'm so glad we have missed you. And let's go Reds with like four exclamation points behind it. So you could see through her notes that she just wrote about certain players differently than she did the others. And she truly, truly appreciated it. I know Marty and Joe made a big deal about him being a local hometown boy. Even though she lived in Louisville, Kentucky, she did live in Cincinnati for a little bit. Um, so I do think that's where her love for the Reds may have started because her and Grandpa lived in Cincinnati for like a year before they moved here to Louisville. And Oster's career ended around the time that she stopped doing the scorecard. So the last game we have is Game 7 of the 1991 World Series, Jack Morris's 10-inning epic shutout. And that is still considered one of the greatest games of all time and one of the greatest World Series of all time. So she passed away at the age of 90 in 1996. So those last five years, um, she had some trouble with concentration and those kind of things. So I think that's why she eventually gave that up. But what I tell people, guys, too, is... If you really think about that 19-year window where she kept score from 73 to 91, you could not have picked another two-decade sequence for any part in Red's history to capture what she did. I mean, think about it. The construction of the Big Red Machine, adding the final pieces of bringing Griffey up, 
to the Big Red 75-76. Rose's 44-game hit streak. You have to see it to believe it. I know they look impressive, but when you see the stack of them and you can feel them and look at them, it brings it hits totally different. Um, Rob Dibble, I mailed a couple to him because he had me on his show a couple different times. And when he received them, he told me, he said, not only were they precious, you know, here's a nasty boy saying she, it was precious, but you can feel the indentions on the paper because <laughs> her arthritis was so bad she wrote so hard. So you can feel on the paper where it's going through. And he said to me, he said, Mike, I'm convinced she put more effort in keeping score at that age than I did to loosen up and to go in and work my one inning of a game. The power is undeniable. You know, when Ryan Fragan was on the show, he was choked up because for him as a sports writer, he's dedicated his career to writing about baseball you know, he had just such profound respect for the way that your grandma was listening and reading and thinking about the same, what he has poured himself into. And that was just as someone who wasn't doing it for money, was doing it for life, you know, for, was doing it as her life was documenting and listening and being part of it. Something that you put on the website as a, as a quote that many Lee like to say, and I think it's something that we try to emulate in this podcast and you know, I've seen this attributed to a couple different people but you know from now on maybe we'll just attribute it to Minnie Lee she said there's so much good in the worst of us and so much bad in the best of us it behooves all of us to say nothing about the rest of us and uh, you know it, it seems like Minnie Lee really looked for the good in people and the good in baseball and it's a story that we love so thank you so much for joining us Mike thank you guys it's been a pleasure I really appreciate it where can folks see the website? So it's grandmasscorebook.com. So there's two S's in the middle, grandmasscorebook.com. Great. And we'll have a link in the show notes to that. So thank you, Mike, for joining us. And thank you, David, for the story today. And thank you to you at home. If your grandma's recipe for chicken pot pie has a little bit of baseball in it, we'd love to hear from you on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.